Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the world of arts, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hesham Montasser. If you're enjoying the show, please go to your podcast player and hit the subscribe button. You can also tag us on Instagram at the lighthouse underscore AE and leave us a review. Today's episode comes with a little slice of history. Some of you might not know that this podcast actually started as a physical conversation series at the Lighthouse D3 before it was digitized. And one of our guests we had at the time was Nada Dibs, a designer based out of Beirut whose work spans multiple design forms from furniture to craft to fashion to interiors. On the back of a breakfast conversation Hany and I had with Nada in Beirut, we felt we had so much more ground to cover and promptly invited Nada to come on the show during design week. And the rest, as they say, is history. And I, start, I look for um, coming up with a collection that brings out the craft to its best. We have a, a small lighthouse gift for you. Oh. It's oh, another pioneering you. Arab artist. Thank you so much for coming. And stay thank tuned, you. we'll be having more events uh, soon. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Nada has retained her brand's essence through many ups and downs, including the recent explosions in Beirut. The cross-cultural harmony, the hybridity of her own life, she grew up in Japan, studied in Beirut and the US, and now works with regional craftsmen out of Beirut. And most importantly, a timeless aesthetic that in my opinion truly embodies a modern Middle East design ethos. I'm going to just start, and this is something we spoke about a little bit in our first conversation, but I think it's worth mentioning again. When we opened the lighthouse, we were playing around with the kind of a tagline of what this one of our what our values are and what it represents. And I remember one of the things we talked about is we want the lighthouse beyond the food to embody a kind of contemporary Middle Eastern design aesthetic. When I think of contemporary Middle Eastern design. I think you are always the name that comes to mind to me and to many other people as an inspiration and someone that really led the way. Let's start from the beginning. You grew up in Japan. Can you walk us through a little bit of your upbringing um, and then move to, to Lebanon and then how this very particular aesthetic that you have and design philosophy came into place? Okay, so I grew up in Japan because my family has been... Uh, went in 1917. My great uncle traveled down the Silk Route. He arrived to Shanghai, heard of opportunities in Kobe, Japan. From Lebanon. Uh, well, at the time there was no Lebanon, was so it was Greater Syria. Greater Syria. Yeah, so from Greater Syria, from Damascus, went down the Silk Route, and we, uh, he settled in Kobe, Japan, which is a port city with a lot of international um, uh, community. And uh, then my uncle went, my uh, other uncle went in the 50s, and then my father went to Japan in 1953 as a young adult of 23 years old. Not married. Not married. Single. He was single. Following his family, essentially. Yes. And, uh, you know, they were trading in textiles. And they came back, my father came back to uh, Beirut. So Beirut then came, <laughs> came it into came, the... It became yeah. a thing, yeah. yeah. What did your father do? So he was trading in textiles. Okay. So and it's still a family business, and now my brothers are still in Japan, uh, taking Running care of the business. business. Yeah. And he met your mother in Beirut. He met my mother in Beirut. Uh, got married. I was born, 
and uh, went to Japan. And your mother is still in Japan? My mother is still in Japan. And, and then you grew up there and then you came to Beirut to study? I actually studied business administration. It is not my first choice, but they, the, my parents really wanted me to get to know my roots. And, you know, growing up in Japan, I actually was, was struggling because there was nobody like me. There weren't other Arabs. There weren't other Muslims. So I almost had this kind of shame, you know, like as a child, you want to relate and belong. 100%. There was no sense of community. Were there other Arabs or other even, I don't even want to call brown people, but non-Japanese people in the school? Were you like really completely alone? Yeah, well, you know, we had a lot of Europeans and Americans. Okay. We had some Asians. Uh, the other community that I could relate to culturally was the Indian community because the Indian community, you know, their parents were conservative. They were a bit strict. They weren't as loose in their upbringing of girls. <laughs> so, you know, it was, uh, it was very much a community I related to. But in my particular school, they were, uh, they were mostly Europeans and Americans. They were taller than me. Uh, and they were, a lot of them were children of missionaries. So they were there to, uh, you know, convert the Japanese people into either, you know, Catholicism or Protestant. Like many other missionary schools around the world. Yeah. And what was your coping mechanism with that? I mean, how did you deal with that? Would you just, did you just go inwards or did you try to connect in different ways? How did you deal with it? I think I went inwards, very much of an introvert, very shy um, and uh, very quiet and... Um, yeah, it was really tough. And I think I actually used to do a lot of drawings and coloring. And, you know, I used to go home and color. That was that one was, of your ways of... That was uh, my ways. Yeah, I loved painting and coloring and building. And uh, I loved working with my hands. But yet you went to business school. I went to business. I didn't have much choice because my parents wanted me to go to the American University of Beirut only. No other university in Beirut. And uh, they didn't have this department of uh, design. Yeah. or Which eventually became a very well-known department yes. in the Middle East. Yeah. Did they insist on you going to AUB because they were hoping to indoctrinate you in Lebanese ways? Or was it maybe you'll meet a significant person? I mean, what, 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 yeah. what was the rationale? So I was their kind of guinea pig. You know, okay. I'm the first child. <laughs> and I went, uh, I, yeah, they wanted me to meet my husband, my future husband. And they thought if I stayed in Japan, I'd end up with a Japanese man. They were worried. If I went to America, I'd go off the wrong track. Sort of uh, the typical Arab Typical concerns. Arab mentality. <laughs> they changed their mind after my, with my siblings. <laughs> but they always me, do. The first one is always I know. hard. So it was really a blessing in disguise, I have to say. But at that time, I was very angry at them. Like, how would you send me to Lebanon? It's war. And even my classmates were surprised that my parents made that choice. Yeah, and at this point, you've sort of probably somewhat cracked the Japanese code finally, and there you go to a completely foreign place now, essentially to you, right, without the language. Without the language. You don't really know the culture. Without the culture. Yeah, and you're I mean, sort of thrown into the deep end. Yes, and I really was thrown into the deep end, to the point as simple as uh, I would meet some friends, and they say, Bukra, we're going to the beach. So Bukra means the future, but for me, Bukra meant tomorrow. So I'd have everything prepared <laughs> and pack my, my beachwear. And, you know, it turns out, no, Bukra is like... Arab Bukra, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In a way, I was actually very happy because I was in the dorms. Uh, you know, I spoke English. And so there was a side of me where 
uh, side of the people that were a bit like uh, upset with me that I spoke English, like, don't you speak your Arabic language? Like, why are you showing off? You know, so I had this kind of yeah, yeah, They didn't understand, yeah, they thought it was sort of a, an element of showing yeah, off but, as opposed to... Yeah, but at the same time, they would wonder, who's this young girl who has come... From? I was 17, I was very young. Who's this young girl who just came from, you know, Asia, all the way from Japan? So they also were like um, wondering and they were curious. So I, I made a lot of friends and it just opened up this whole world of... Arabs who were like me, you know, and and they're modern. They're not conservative, and and so that that reminded me of how important it is to have this sense of belonging, you know. So this was like the first trigger of like I think I was kind of like a very quiet, almost depressed child, you know. But when I went to AUB, you flourished. I flourished, you know. I was like I'm being celebrated. Yes, maybe I spoke English. And some of the people didn't like that. But, you know, I felt like I was in with one with, uh, you know, a community. So that was huge for me. And what's so interesting is you developed this appreciation for roots and for belonging. But you also used that hybridity and brought it back into your practice eventually, right? Yes. I mean, your, my in immediate reaction to seeing your work in the early days, when I first first time I went to Beirut, was that amazing hybridity of this sort of Japanese aesthetic and clean lines and minimalism married with mostly Middle Eastern materials. Um, and you did this beautiful, they, they came together in such a complementary way that was really, for, for someone like myself, quite eye-opening. How did that develop? That was all really subconscious. So... I remember as a child, I used to always say, okay, um, we had different religions, we have different nationalities, and you know, I always was like, there must be something in common. Why are we so different from everyone else? For example, like we had a lot of like um, Arab Jews who were in Japan. Some of them held the Israeli nationality, but you know, we spoke the same language. We had the same culture, and I'm like, wait, but you know, you know, I. I didn't see the national differences, you know. I wanted that I wanted that one common element. So that was the constant question that I had. So eventually I arrived to Lebanon 20 years ago and I look around to see what is Middle Eastern furniture. And I realized that it was stuck from 200 years ago, furniture made for the Ottoman made in the Ottoman Empire. Can you just pause for a second before we get to that. Because you needed the skills to be able to express the sentiment. How did you acquire the skill? Because it's not just, I, I could have the sentiment today. It doesn't mean I can express it. Yeah. What brought you to the point where you were confident to be able to use the sentiment that you were, I think, about to talk about and actually express it in terms of your craftsmanship and your workmanship? What was there before? Did you study it? Did you? Yes. So, yes, I did study. So, after the business. After the AUB. AUB so, AUB times was very difficult because every, every year or every semester, every other semester, we'd have to escape the country because, you know, either there's strikes or, I mean, it was not sure. a very stable time. So finally, I did graduate, and uh, I, this time I wanted to study interior design. Yeah. 
or interior architecture. You knew that's what you wanted to do. Did anyone in your just, family just, do interior or nobody? So no. my family is completely business oriented. Yeah, they're commerce and they're commerce. And they sell meters, hundreds of thousands of meters of fabric. They had no idea what what it means <laughs> to design. You know, the word design, even for me. But I knew I wanted to do that. So I applied to the Rhode Island School of Design, and which was the like, School of Design globally, yeah, and which I really, really, I think it was really the passport to my. <laughs> so that craftsmanship was taught at RISD, essentially. I studied interior architecture, but there was one course in furniture design, which I, when I looked back a few years ago, I realized I got an A plus in it, and I had no idea. <laughs> um, I'm yeah. So at that time, we. Uh, teacher John Dunnigan I still remember he he gave us like this a word and we had to take this word and transform it into a piece of furniture and I found myself going to all these different uh, um, workshops and look at materials and and then I found a way to bring so um, basically he gave me the word light light could mean heavy and light heavy and light and it could also mean see-through or, you know, um, visual light. And so I found a way where I can combine those two meanings in one piece. And so it's really about finding that common element or compromising or finding that common element between those two words, two meanings. And I found, I made a piece of furniture out of that. That was your first piece? It was my first piece. So basically it's a table, side table, that is held by transparent plexiglass legs. God, I feel I have to see this table. Yeah, (laughs) and the top is an opaque uh, granite top. And what's in between that holds it all together because it's uh, it's, uh, detachable was a uh, a steel um, Frame. frame that is reflective. Wow. Right? So one is opaque, one is reflective, one is transparent. Wow. And one is light, medium weight. And this was right after you graduated. This was in my, in, oh, it was one of the furniture graduation courses. graduation thesis, essentially. Yeah, one of my courses. Yeah. So that was like, looking back, I seem to have this knack for actually finding a balance between, you know, uh, words or unexpected things. And I seem to words, do that. Words, cultures, East and yeah, West. I mean, exactly. All of that comes Time, old and new. What's so interesting to me, see, I mean, you know, the concept of Arabs or people that grew up in this region or even didn't grow up in the region, but like you went back to the region and then went to the States or Europe to study is relatively common, let's say. They learn typically kind of in Western school, schools of thought, Western design, if you talk about art and design. And they many times go back home and practice that. And they use what they've learned to practice that contemporary language they're using is language they've learned there. You know, and I'm one of those people that went to the States for many years and came back and used that. What's so fascinating about what you've done is you've crafted, to me, feeling seemingly almost from the beginning, your own design language. So one thing to say, you know what, these guys are doing a lot of very contemporary stuff. We're still stuck in the Middle Ages. Let me create contemporary furniture or contemporary designs. But you've almost seemingly from the beginning had a code or a language, a very particular style, that merged these two. That's usually something I would have imagined would have happened 10, 20 years in your practice. How did that start right away, that kind of combo? You know, it's so subconscious, all of it. (laughs) Okay, so after RISD, I worked a bit in the States, uh, and then I moved to London. Mm. Because I was looking, 
I was also on this search of, of finding my roots and having this sense of belonging. So in the States, there was no sense of community. Hard, yeah. So London, I knew there was an Arab community that spoke English, you know. That, uh, this, in the UK in the 90s, this was where I started to appreciate. I would go around to furniture stores, and I would see that everything was about the antiques. It wasn't the contemporary furniture um, time, you know, the very cool furniture that today they have in the UK did not exist in that time. And it was actually recession time. There was no Conran shop yet? There was a Conran shop. I think there, there yes, there was a Conran. It was early very days. Early days yeah. Habitat. There was yeah. Habitat. Just starting. Just starting, yeah. Design. And it was, and but you visit places, Harrods or wherever you go, yeah. and antique places, and they would talk about, you know, Louis the 18th century, Louis <laughs> says, 18th century, yeah. the carving, and they pointed out all this beautiful work. And uh, I got to know about uh, David Lindley's cigar, you know, like his cigar boxes and how they use marquetry. So I started to become very interested in, in craft. It just, and there was this sense of sophistication in craft. And knowing that things that are crafted over time goes up in value, whereas things that are made, you know, um, mass-produced, they don't go up in no. value. There's a timelessness to that. Yeah, there's a timelessness to it. So, you know, all this was going into my subconscious. So a few years later, uh, you know, maybe nine years later, I moved to uh, Lebanon, finally hoping that I will, you know, get to the core of where I'm originally from. And uh, I find that I'm actually not fully Lebanese. And I looked around to see what is Middle Eastern furniture, and there was no such thing. They were still antiques. Yeah, like these beautiful antique mirrors. All the homes were essentially antique and yeah, I mean they would or even contemporary homes. Uh, the way they would have contemporary Italian, French, Belgian furniture, and then they would bring in an old uh, Middle Eastern mirror, Correct. you know, a Damascan mirror or a chest of drawers, and it's beautiful. That combination the was the contrast is beautiful, and there was artisan du Liban. They but. For me, I was really interested in furniture making, yeah. and there were no furniture designers. Uh, no university taught furniture design at the time. Today they do. And in a way, so there was this open canvas for me to experiment with. And I was actually, um, you, know, uh, you know, I just went to see how the craft was done, and they didn't have the craft. The craft I was looking for was based in Damascus. So I took a trip to Damascus, and I saw this workmanship, and I saw the pride these workmen had. You know, one of the guys, he had these golden teeth, you know, <laughs> smiling, so proud of what he... Until today, I Until have to today, say, they, are, they have so much pride in what so they do. So much pride in what they do. But then I would look at the end product, and I would imagine the type of people like me, and saying, okay, we like it, but, you know, we can't relate to it. You know, this is not something I can put in my home. So I thought, how can I take that beautiful craft and apply it in a new way? And it was automatic for me. Reinterpreted, essentially. Reinterpreted. Automatic for me to just remove all the... Uh, frills. Frills, exactly, yeah. and get down to the essence. Yeah. And this is Japanese philosophy. So the Japanese, you know, they say less is more, they say zen, but basically it's really removing all the frills, all the excess, and getting down to the essence of you know, what is the meaning of this uh, craft or this piece or this function? You know, just 
enough information to let you know, understand what it is. And so I use that with the Middle Eastern crafts. So all of a sudden, all these curvy Louis XIV chairs or the curvy mirrors have become rectilinear and simple. And what stood out was the craft. So I highlighted the craft. And that is really, in essence, what I do is I never think about the, the form of the piece when I'm designing. I take a craft and I see what form I can create to highlight that craft. Yet the pieces are highly functional. Yes. So, so that's the interesting part. So, we, I mean, I have some of your pieces. You spoke about this. Some of the trays from, I don't know, 15 years ago. Um, some of the, the plexi tables, which are multifunctional. One, they're timeless. Two, the quality. Actually, they age better. So every year they look more beautiful than the year before. <laughs> but thirdly, which is something that I found not as easy to find, a lot of times there is a, a beauty in how they look, but then the functionality lacks. That's not the case. And that's also very Japanese, where and German, frankly, in terms of design, where you have this high functionality, but it's married with this beauty. So it also is very American, if you really yes, think of it. that's true. You know, I always use this parallel where, just like my family went down the Silk Route uh, to get to Japan, you know, uh, in the Silk Route, people trade ideas and craft techniques. So, you know, like silk went to Venice, uh, uh, glass uh, blowing went to uh, Bohemia, you know, so there was a lot of exchange of ideas. So in a way, you know, growing up in Japan, living in the States, uh, Europe, and coming back to Lebanon, you have all these different aesthetics that I picked up along the way. And when you think of America, what's really interesting is it's a brand new country, 200 years old. And when, when the settler, the pilgrims that went and settled there, everything was back to basics. So everything is about practicality, right? And so in a way, and I also have parents, and they, it does come from uh, Japanese, my Japanese up, upbringing of the no-nonsense, no you know? Like, you know, why are you creating that piece? What's the point, you know? So, yes, so I'm always asking those questions. So they better be practical pieces, you know? They better be useful, not just a decorative piece. So I grew up with a no-frills mentality. Yeah, that whole Rams as well, sort of minimalism. Yeah. We'll be right back to talk about Nada's collaboration with manga brands such as Ikea and her love for anime. Yes, that's Japanese anime, right after the short break. I wanted to take a minute and tell you about our friends at Monviso, one of our sponsors who make this show possible. Monviso is founded by an Italian entrepreneur right here in Dubai and has evolved into one of the region's most popular mineral waters sourced directly from the Italian Alps. We immediately connected with the Monvisio's team vision and how giving back is such an integral part of their mission. Through their extensive recycling program and their Take Water, Give Life initiative, proceeds from every bottle of water sold is donated to Al Jalila Foundation to support its education and research. So stock up on still or mineral water by using our exclusive Monviso discount code, Lighthouse10, which you can redeem at store.monviso.com. Once again, the code is Lighthouse10, L-I-G-H-T-H-O-U-S-E-10. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with our guest, Nada Dibs. have worked with huge brands. I mean, Ikea is one. 
Yes, that's right. We worked with a number of Italian shoemakers, is that right? I remember. Fratelli Rossetti. Exactly, Rossetti. Sandals, limited edition sandals with them. Were you not uh, intimidated to go, you know, I don't know, if I'm collaborating with Ikea or Rossetti or one of those big brands, Louis Vuitton, etc., I'm saying, oh my God, like my brand is going to get diluted. But you seem to do it with a lot of confidence. It's funny because... Am I right? Yeah, actually, it does appear that way. I'm just doing what I'm doing, but then it appears that um, all of these um, um, collaborations come from this, uh, uh, not a childhood, but like a dream, you know? All of them were dreams. Like, I've always loved shoes, and I've always loved heels. And and when Mr. Rossetti himself (laughs) visited our studio uh, in Beirut, he saw I had all these heels that I had experimented with. And he's like, you seem to love shoes. And I said, yes, my dream was to design for a big brand. But I forgot that he was Mr. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I'm the big brand. Yeah, I'm a big brand. And uh, he's like, would you like to? So he was very inspired by my passion for these shoes because I had all these heels. And I kept bringing some under my desk. Uh, So uh, same with IKEA. IKEA, I was, you know, that... I wanted to actually, when I moved to Beirut, I actually wrote them a letter. At the time, I think it was a letter or a fax, you know? We didn't have email. I wrote them, dear Ikea, (laughs) I would really like to represent you in Lebanon. Would you please uh, consider me? me I'm an (laughs) Can you fax me back? (laughs) I I studied at Rhode Island School of Design. I'm an up-and-coming designer. Yeah, and so I, um, I did send, and I do have a a letter from them saying, unfortunately, we already have someone who represents uh, Lebanon, but thank you for asking. And so I still have that piece of wow. letter. And then and how many years later did you wind up collaborating with them? 20 years. 20 years Almost later. Almost 20 huh? years later. Did you go back and show them this letter? No, but I should. You should. Yeah. <laughs> I should you show really them should. this letter. Yeah, because you said something about them that they actually bothered to answer I you mean, back. I did tell, yeah, I, to- I told uh, one colleague that I worked with... Uh, but yeah, so for me, I um, used to go to Ikea. It was a very small shop in Kobe that they opened. And that was a trip I used to love to go to. You know, So that goes back 30, 40, 30 years, even more. So, so everything that's manifested today are little dreams I had. And even my shyness. Like, so I'm, I follow my own little path. But I think what's happening is that a lot of people are relating to what I feel. You know, now there's this the idea, the idea of duality, really. Oh, one hundred No one, no one is actually one oh, one way anymore. I mean, and look at Dubai; it's a perfect oh, I mean, example. The point I was making earlier: the lighthouse was a direct result of hybridity, and a lot of that hybridity I saw in your work. There's a reason once you put your mirrors up, which were designed for sale, we never took them yeah, down. I know, I know, and now so they nice. become part of the lighthouse, right? Yeah. I put that everybody's like, well, no, people are buying them. No, 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 we're going to keep them. You know? <laughs> so, so nice, yeah. And it, you know, because it, that hybridity was very much at the essence of, of our brand when we started. I felt that, um, you know, I had obviously grew up in Cairo and lived abroad, lived in the US and then the UK for a while and came back and wanted to do something with food and design that encapsulated all of those things. Went to a German school as well. So there are all these Amazing. elements. Amazing, yeah. And that hybridity, uh, I think there's enough, peop- uh, enough people that would be interested in it. And I think your work is very much that, or a different manifestation of that. And that market is actually much larger than we think. Yes. Because almost all of us, many of us, have that hybridity. Dubai is, 
essentially a case in point, right? I know, it's amazing. It doesn't get any more hybrid than that. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, of course, we all retain our essence of who we are. Like, you know, we're Arabs. We're dressed in modern clothing. Yes. You know, like that's how I, I translate that into furniture. So the form is quite pure and simple, but you feel there's an element, and which is craft, which is our heritage. You seem that all during all this time to very much believe in not just Arab craftsmanship. You always, I remember having this conversation with you where you insisted on doing all the work in the region, in Beirut or in Syria yeah. or in Damascus. In the region, yeah. And, and that was very important to you. Talk, us, talk to us a little bit about that, why this was important to you. Why didn't you at some point say, you know what, I'm not a dibs, I have these beautiful designs, Frankly, I'll be very honest, I can outsource the manufacturing to, you know, somewhere else, right? And it'll be a lot cheaper and I still have my design stamp, which is what many global brands do. Talk us through that thinking. Every single uh, business consultant tells me to, to go out. Yeah, of course. Higher and margins, you yes. know. Yes, and I, I don't know do why I have such a strong... Um, Visceral reaction yeah, against it. Yeah, a reaction against it. Uh, maybe it's because I work a lot with our craftspeople and I just cannot like let abandon. them go. There's, I can't abandon them. Well, They're could, so I'm just gonna push passionate. Back. You, could, yeah. you could keep some lines that you do there and do the majority of it abroad and kind of higher volume, but you didn't do that. And we, you and I had this conversation three I years know. ago over breakfast. Honestly, I'll be very honest with you. In many ways, I salute you for that, but it is definitely not the smart business decision necessarily. So no. is it... You feel you want to give back? Is it the craftsmanship that you're holding on to, the identity? I mean, when I look around, like let's say Hermès, you know, in France, okay, they can also probably manufacture yes. in uh, other... And they but don't. they don't. They don't. And, you know, I... Maybe to make it simple, basically I want to aim to be the Hermès of the yeah. Middle East. Bottega doesn't you know? either. Yeah. yeah. So for me, because I grew up not so proud of who I am, I found that it's actually, but I felt so that belonging is so important. And also preserving our heritage is actually preserving ourselves. If we compromise on that, we compromise on our heritage. That's and we lose it. I agree. And so someone has to do it, right? If other people want to make money out of it, okay. But me, uh, for me, Okay, yes, it's important to sustain the business. Oh, I have to make it's money. it's commercial business, but I don't feel that's at the essence of what you do. It's that value system that drives you. It's obvious. Yeah. It's so important for me, and I can't let go of my craftsmen. And uh, actually, even now I'm working on a, a mapping uh, furniture ma uh, maker mapping in Tripoli, in the north of Lebanon, because it's uh, where a lot of the furniture makers are, and they're all, you know, they have no work. Yeah. And so I'm doing a very, I have hired someone doing a special mapping exercise to see uh, what crafts they do, their motivation level, if they're willing to, to work, if I bring them work. You know, I just want to, I still want to keep trying. And I think it's very important to highlight this point. I can't emphasize enough that I'm not sure all the people appreciate that you're doing that. I understand that you've held on to this despite the pressures. Um, and frankly, it also shows in terms of the quality of, of, of what's produced. Thank you. I mean, I've seen yeah, your work uh, now for many for, for a long time, and I've, I've, I have some of your work, and I know. 
I do have people, factories, like I've visited some factories here in Dubai, and they're like, oh, yes, the CNC machine can do that. I said, yes, probably, but I actually try to um, make objects that the machines cannot do. Yeah. So I, you know, the carving would be around at the bottom of a thing or on a curved surface, which is much more difficult to work on. So I try to find ways where there's a benefit to having, you know, craftsmen. And the energy that those products carry, I feel, is also important. Yeah. And something you, I think, really believe in. And we've, we've had this conversation. I actually remember about it maybe a year and a half or two ago when we sat at some point and you told me something about, and I wasn't at the time really focused on that. And you said, no, but, you know, because this person has good energy. And I started <laughs> paying more attention to it. And then, if you recall, I spoke to you about this again uh, in my home with, with my wife, with May. And, and I was like, you know, no, that's right. So you've always had this, um, you were very attentive to energy. Walk us with that. Is that coming again from sort of a Japanese upbringing or is that just Netherlands? Yeah, I would say yes. So remember you were asking me how I was when I was a child, you know, yeah. very quiet. So I was very much of a listener. You know, I would like to listen to what people say, uh, observe. And, you know, in Japan, it's not what you say that counts. It's what you don't say. And that there's a freedom to that, which yeah, is beautiful. Uh, but when it comes to craft, um, uh, you know when you cook for someone you love yeah. and the food is so good? Nafas. How, we nafas. Call okay, it, yeah. how do you explain that? You know, you cannot. It's just there. We can't see it, but it's there. And I think, like... It's similar. Okay, my furniture is... You know, there's a lot of beautiful furniture out there. But I see that, that people are drawn to what I do. Sometimes It's partly the intricate geometry that I work with. But I think it's also the nafas. It's the energy of that yeah, craftsman. Me, 100%. And what is this energy? It's really uh, attention, right? And what is attention? It's love. So when they say labor of love, it's really a labor of love. It's, uh, and so when you're cooking, you're cooking with love, you know, and... So love is a really beautiful word. I mean, not the love of I love you, but, you know, it's a real love. <laughs> that's, that's lovely too, but yeah, I, I get what but you're saying. Yeah, I mean, this is true love. And so what people feel, I think, when they see that intricate workmanship is that energy of that craftsman. And because I do see people walking through the showroom and going to touch it, you know, like they want to go touch and feel. And so they're drawn, you know, who, who makes them... Want to, to want to draw there. I think it's this silent energy. So I'm very much that there's a spiritual, spiritual aspect to craftsmanship. And you see it also with the Sufis. You see a lot of carpet makers and scarf makers in um, India and Persia. A lot of them are Sufis. And they use that as part of their meditation. So I think the more craft we do, the happier people will be, the more peaceful people will be. You know, it's just a bigger philosophy than, you know, just a piece of furniture. Did that help you during the recent events in Beirut? I mean, obviously Beirut went through a terrible time, to put it very mildly. Still. The explosion. <laughs> Still going Still. through. Uh, sorry, absolutely. Yeah. The explosion, the essential bankruptcy. Um, your showroom, amongst many others, was destroyed. How did you cope with that? Was that part of your coping mechanism? My coping mechanism was to keep going, mm. stand up immediately. I mean, next day we were already starting to and not just you, restore many, the many, windows. Many, that many people, seen. many people. But Where do you think that comes from? It almost feels like the Germans after the World War, you know what I mean? That they yeah. immediately just went to re reconstructing. 
And look at where they are today. I, so maybe I, there's hope. Yeah, I, I didn't want to betray my craftsmen. And they're not just mine, you know, I outsource also. I sure. just did not want to, um, I don't know if that's the right word, betray, but I that's really wanted, I, I didn't have the heart to just pick up and leave. Uh, you know, like they're the ones, you know, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be inspired. I mean, my work is inspired by them. So for me, it was so important that I keep going. Um, and, you know, it's been really positive even in Europe. You know, we're not only received in um, the Middle East very nicely, but also in Europe, they're starting to see um, the beauty in what we do. And so this is something that, you know, I'm very, very keen on. You know, because when I first arrived to Lebanon, people were uh, always thought about importing. You know, we were kings of imports. You know, we have every brand in Lebanon. I remember that. It was very interesting Everything. because the Gulf always had that. But the rest of Arab countries didn't. But Beirut always did. You'd always. find brands, cartel before anyone had it. Yes. Ketal before anyone had it, et cetera, Everything. et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, what is exported from our part of the world? Like, what is ex So for me... The idea of exporting, and that's where the identity issue became a thing. You know, what is what do we want to export? You know, partly modern, partly traditional. Has it mattered that you're a woman doing this to you? And in terms of any challenges or obstacles you faced, because ultimately, I mean, you know, this is a region that hasn't necessarily always seen women succeed in their businesses. Um, you go and you're telling people what to do and craftsmen that are probably mostly men. Yeah. The word craftsmen comes for a reason. Has that ever been something you think about or, or not? Um, no, actually, I haven't thought about it so much. Uh, I think Doesn't the really opposite. Matter. I'm just it yeah, I mean, I think it's important for certain people, maybe in corporate, the corporate world. Yes. But in, my, in my field, they just, the craftsmen just appreciated that I was there with them you know like it was more about connecting yeah, there's respect for what you yeah. do and i don't think the sex yeah matters necessarily. it didn't matter i think maybe there's respect for women in general i feel you know they i think there is respect there for is women respect but there's also i was going to get to the point of also in terms of being a, a, a role model mm. because i think that's important because again i mean the, the we have very few role models as it is let alone female role models i know so this is something that i've come to learn about myself, because, you know, wisdom creeps up on you. So at the beginning, we're sitting and learning, and suddenly you're actually teaching. And it's very subtle. <laughs> the, it, it's subtle. So it subtle. now I do feel, because now there's a big new generation of designers in the region, and a lot of them come to me and say, Nada, you've paved the way for us. And I'm like, oh, I did? I don't remember. Like, I don't... I you didn't think of it as such. I didn't even well, think probably, of it. That's probably okay. But, and to me, that's like huge. And that's one of the reasons I couldn't also stop after the blast. Like if these people, these young generation, um, I've, been, I've been creating this Romo and I've paved the way. If I stop, what will happen to them? You know, as a leader in, in a way in this field. And so for me, this sense of obligation to keep going. But I, I mean, I'm not doing it because it's, I'm obligated. I'm actually happy doing it. But it really is, um, you know, it just, the, my role has shifted. Well, it's, to be very uh, honest very with you, I mean, it, it, it's a lot of things that now people talk about almost in marketing terms that have become slogans that, honestly, you've been doing all along. 
and maybe not calling them that. And that's much, much better and much more effective in my book. Now, we do have to talk about it because I think it's important that that awareness is there. As I was saying earlier, it's important that people that either buy your products or support your work, et cetera, and understand what goes into it, that you are supporting craftsmanship and so on. But I think that a lot of times today, we're starting to see all of those sort of slogans come out and a lot of big global brands because they're on the defensive, because they weren't practicing this for many, many years. Right. Right. Whereas you've got it the right way around, which is, yeah. was always the case. It was always the case. So, yeah. And it's very natural to you. This is not something you've discovered. Oh my God, no, we shouldn't be exploiting children. So let me not stop doing these practices. No, it was the other way around. Yeah. You know, that's always been the case. But I think it needs to also be highlighted because it paves the way for others. Yeah. And because it's such an important contribution. Yeah. Thank you. That's really nice. But uh, yeah, we kind of like are, we haven't found the right term, but I would say like authentic luxury is something that we, you know, some terms that, because it is what, what we do is such intricate work. It does, it is luxury at the end of the day, but it's, it comes from an honest place and authentic place. You were contemplating a few things that you're working on. Can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming projects and what you're focused on? So uh, for me, I feel like in order to preserve the craft right now in the Middle East, I need to actually bring work to these craftsmen. And, uh, you know, my happy face in Dubai <laughs> is trying to come, come, you know, like I feel like my next um, step phase in my life is to actually spend more time in Dubai and maybe do more collaborations with uh, brands uh, and, um, you know, express the value of craft. Because I think um, we're not there yet here. No, we're not. And you're the perfect I think, ambassador. Yeah. And I think that, you know, maybe if I say Hermes of the Middle East, it makes it easier for people to understand. Sadly, yes. Yeah. It sadly, be, but, but I wouldn't like to, but it's okay. I don't mind. Um, okay. But the idea is to really just be aware that it really represents who we are. It's not just about, oh, we want the same look. It's really uh, appreciating ourselves. And so what I'm doing is I work a lot with interior designers and architects, um, and I will, every visit, and I choose not to do it in large scale. I like one-on-one -on -one, um, yeah. uh, conversations, bespoke. bespoke conversations, explaining how important it is uh, to preserve our heritage, to keep the craftsmen going, and to create something of our own identity. And I, I, I kind of call it neo-Arabian furniture, you know, like, because there's nothing like sure. I, that look, you know, it's, it's a new, it's a hybrid look, like you're saying. It is definitely hybrid. Is there any, on a more playful note, any particular piece that you've, fell in love with more than others? Like, do you have favorites? <laughs> like, you know, some people have favorites with their children. And you're like, oh, you know, this is my go-to piece. So I've created this. I think my piece that I'm very proud of okay. is it's a, it's a bar unit called uh, Now and Zen. And instead of being inspired by the rectilinear minimalistic forms of Japan, when you look at Japan today, it's all about manga and anime and you know, the crazy fantasy and the colors and, and what I really love about... So I spent a year, before I even knew I was going to do this collection, uh, I spent a year 
Actually, I would avoid going to dinners and I would just go home and watch anime. One film a night. For about As an a year. inspiration or subconscious? Just subconscious. <laughs> I, I needed to connect to Japan, home, and listen to the Japanese language and understand where Japan has come, uh, you know, has reached. And um, so then I started to do some research on, you know, what's the philosophy behind anime. anime. And so one of it is really it's about fantasy because... You know, if you don't have blue eyes and long purple hair, you can have that in an anime. If uh, it's also a, a lot of it, and what I'm drawn to is that the stories are very spiritual. So they always talk about the other world or, you know, the um, you know, past life or, you know, they have their, in, in their language and their culture, it's just right there. And to me, that intrigues me. And the third thing is, very often, there's a female heroine in the film. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do a, a kind of feminine collection. So I took Mother of Pearl, and I stained it in all these rainbow colors. And so I created a kind of like uh, a collection really inspired by that crazy modern geishas wearing the crazy heels and, you know, mini kimonos. And so that, to me, is like, means a lot, because I was able to adapt something very contemporary into furniture. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hashem Montasser. We're produced by Chirak Desai and our content director is Farhas Sharif. Make sure not to miss any future episodes by following the Lighthouse Conversations in your favorite podcast player like Apple, Google, Spotify, or Angami, among others. We'll be back in two weeks.